as we study the Gospel of Luke, the last day of the Lord's life this morning, and a study that I've entitled The Final Provision and Protests. We'll pick up this morning in verse 14 down to verse 30. From here on out, it's the story of the trial, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But He's going to institute communion as we know it. He's going to bring us near to His heart. And this morning I want to really emphasize that it was the love of God that brought Jesus to the cross. It was not just His hatred for sin. God hates sin. But it was His greater love for us that brought Him to the cross. More than God hates sin, does He love sinners. And I pray this morning that you'll rejoice in that. And maybe your, your burdens are heavy. Maybe your life is hard. Maybe there's difficulty in your life this morning. Maybe you have taken a, a journey where you shouldn't go. Christ paid the price for that sin on Calvary's cross. And He did it because He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come to these words that you spoke to the disciples that last night that you were with them, Lord, thank you for letting us sit in on the councils of heaven to draw from your wonderful words, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning through them, that they would be to us as they were to them, Lord, life. God, would you take your word and anoint it and touch it. Bring it into our hearts and our minds in a way that we'll remember it and use it. And so, God, we ask you, we beg you, touch us this morning by the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember the last week we studied the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We, we spent some time at the Passover table with the disciples, we, we went through those pictures that, that drew the children of Israel a, a beautiful picture of the Passover that was celebrated when they left Egypt, when they were delivered, when the bitterness was turned to sweetness, when the sweetness was turned to redemption, and when the redemption was brought to them personally, when they themselves were saved. And for us, Jesus is now going to pass on this amazing and wonderful new covenant to us. Because we are the recipients of the power of the cross in our lives. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, not with the blood of bulls and goats. And so Jesus is going to give us this morning in our passage this picture of the new covenant, the covenant that would bring forth the age of grace, that would usher in for us a time when you can be saved and not just simply a sacrifice. You see, a lot of people still want to do their own sacrificing. 
Can I remind you, He's already done it for you. But you're here this morning in Christ Jesus. You are the redeemed of the blood of the Lamb of God. And you don't have to pay for your own salvation. You don't need to go into the temple and offer up a bull or a goat or a sheep or a calf or a stick or a piece of bread. That is no longer what you need to do. Because God in His devotion to you offered up Jesus on Calvary's cross. The hour had finally come. Verse 14 begins this way. And remember this in John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17, the same period of time, much more detail about what Jesus said. But here it simply states that after the supper, before the garden, before His arrest, when the hour had come, final hours, final minutes, would you think on that with me for a moment? The sinless, spotless Lamb of God had reached the hour that he would be betrayed by one who professed love. Can I remind you that you betrayed God? I betrayed God. That we were far from Him and He came looking for us. He's not put off and away because of your sin. He wants you to repent of it. He desires for us to be cleansed of it. But he loves sinners. And he even loved Judas. He loved Judas to the end. He sat down with the twelve apostles with him. And he then said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. With the full intent of all that he was and all that he is with fervent desire. Now, for us, we can think of things that we're fervently desirous of. You know, I have to admit, I, I, having been a, a Chargers fan most of my life, I can remember fervent desire for the Chargers to win. And frankly, I'm still waiting for the rapture and the Chargers to win. (laughs) Rapture will undoubtedly get here before. But with fervent desire, I remember going to the playoffs in the 1970s when Dan Fouts was still the quarterback and John Jefferson and, you know, this incredible Air Coriel. I'm doing a football thing today for you. With fervent desire. Face blue in hair, not mine, but most of the people in the stadium, with the towel just howling, you know, ah, they're going to win finally. Hallelujah. You know, many people during football season turned into this fervent desire. You know, you have to have a lot of fervent desire to wear a block of cheese on your head. With fervent desire, intensity, we would say, absolute intensity. This is what I want, and this is what I'm going to do. So much so that you'll make an idiot out of yourself. Amen? 
You'll do anything. Now multiply times infinity. That the motivation isn't some stupid Lombardi trophy. That the motivation is to save all of mankind from its sin. Not a, not a piece of metal with an engraved team name on it. But the palms of his hands, as Isaiah said, engraved with the names of his people. With fervent desire, I have desired. Nothing held back. I'll forfeit even my dignity and my Godhead for it. For I say to you that I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. He offers a simple picture of a kingdom that is to come. And I want to focus in just a moment because... The Jews at that time, like many people today, wrongly thought that the kingdom that Jesus was speaking of was one that was going to come that very day. He was going to speak to them that that wasn't the kingdom he was talking about, and you can see it in this passage. But the Jews then were looking at life from a Jewish perspective. They were thinking that someday that Rome would be dealt with. That someday God would step into time and He would take care of this mighty Roman army and He would usher in what we would call a theocracy. A world literally governed by the church or by God. And they believed, and you're going to see that in the rest of this passage, that they would then be announced as priests and kings and princes in that kingdom, that they would take their place. And Jesus is going to remind them that it is a kingdom that is to come. Many to this day have a false theology called Kingdom Now Theology. They believe the full kingdom of God has actually already come to this earth, that Christ is just ruling from heaven instead of here on earth, and that if you have enough faith that you can be completely freed of all sin, you can be completely free of all sickness, that you would literally never die. Your Bible doesn't paint that picture. Your Bible paints the opposite picture. Matter of fact, Jesus made many statements like, the poor you will have with you always. You won't be healthy, wealthy, and wise necessarily. That in fact, all of the disciples save one died horrific deaths. They were martyred. Only John escaped that, and he lived out his life in a cave on the island of Patmos. You see, the kingdom that Jesus was speaking of is to us even today, yet still in the future. That kingdom will come, and it will be the full kingdom. 
You see, as we think on it today, we actually look forward to that day when things are going to get monumentally better than they are today. Amen? Because if this is all that God intended to do was to kind of sanitize this earth, then I say to you, Jesus was a liar and not Savior at all. He wasn't God. Because what he promised has not happened. Now, I happen to believe he was simply speaking of a time that is yet future to us today. When he will come to this very earth, and he will put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and he will declare a kingdom of righteousness where he will rule and reign from a temple that does not exist yet, according to the book of Ezekiel there in chapters 40 through 41, a temple that is not there that will be rebuilt, the one that Daniel the prophet spoke of in chapter 9 and chapter 12, wherein one day the Antichrist will defile that temple in the middle of the tribulation. And Jesus will come, and he will establish his own actual, literal, righteous kingdom on the face of the earth. We're moving forward towards that time. You see, there was a literal kingdom and a non-literal kingdom that he was speaking about, because each one of you are kingdom kids, amen? That's true. Holy Spirit dwells in you. In theory... You have the same power in you that brought the universe into existence. In practice, you're still a sinner that needs a Savior. In theory and in principle, you could actually be completely sinless. In practice, ain't gonna happen today. Amen? Can. But because you're not yet fully perfected, you will be one day. Praise God. Amen? When you step out of time and into eternity, when you go from garbage to glory, amen, when you finally make that transition from the life that we live now to the life that will live eternal, amen, you'll be perfected. But right now that kingdom is marred, it's stained here on this earth because not everyone is saved. And in fact, Satan does prowl the planet Roaring as a lion, seeking whom he might devour. And not all people respond to the gospel message. Your Bible paints a picture that is so very clear that one day there will be no sin. There will be no death. There will be perfect righteousness and you all are going to get to rule and reign with your Lord Jesus Christ. Can't wait. But we got some time yet to serve while we're on this earth in this imperfect world in these imperfect mortal bodies with these imperfect mortal minds with a perfect Savior. So Jesus says, look, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to come. But it's not like you think. It's future. He's talking about that completed work. And so he says, until the kingdom of God shall come. Future tense. It's an ongoing process. And one day, the church is going to be called home. The world will erupt 
in a time first of peace, followed by the worst terror the world has ever known, and then our King will come. And when He comes, you're coming with Him. Next time He comes, He's coming as the conquering King. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this again until I drink with you, my disciples, in that kingdom, the future one. He's in heaven. He was making a statement. Now do you know why he said, in response to their question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. He said, oh, but the way you know. And where I'm going, I want you to be also. For in my house, my father's house, there are many mansions. Eventually, he would take them home. Hasn't taken all of us home yet. So the fullness of his kingdom has not yet come. He moves on to give this picture that is so important to us as the body of Christ. And in one hand, it's a very difficult picture because Jesus was the innocent Lamb of God, completely spotless, without blemish. He was the full representation of all that Passover stood for, every bit of it. And I want to just give you a few more things to add to what we had as we, as we studied last time. You see, from heaven's perspective... The hour had simply come. This was not an unknown thing to God or to Jesus. This was not a successful plot to overthrow Jesus the Christ. This wasn't this amazing tactician, Judas, who finally came up with a plan sufficient to trap Jesus into being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was not the might of the Roman army that had so pervasively crept into the region that no one could escape their grip. This was not the brains of the Sanhedrin working in their legal minds, figuring out how they could put an accusation against Jesus so that he could not withstand that attack, and boom, we can finally kill him. This was God in eternity past saying, I love my creation more than I hate sin. And I'm going to send Jesus into the world that the world through him would be saved. That's all it was. Complex in the way it's described to us, but in the mind of God, It was the plan authored before time. It was what God always intended to do. Jesus was the Passover lamb. That hour began to draw closer when Adam fell. Do you remember God's response? He himself said, I will provide myself a sacrifice. He slaughtered an innocent animal and clothed them in animal skins. That hour moved closer when he came to this wretched earth as a child. 
and allowed himself to grow up Emmanuel. That hour inched closer still when Jesus took off his carpenter's apron and he hung it on a peg in his father's house and he went to the river Jordan to be baptized by John. It came closer still when he went to the Mount of Olives and he looked at Jerusalem and he wept and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen would gather its chicks, but you would not come. From time eternal, this was the plan. It wasn't something God had to come up with on the fly. Did anybody else do that? You know, I do come up with stuff on the fly. Just like, well, this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened, so my response is, boom, this. That is not what happened. This was the plan. So meticulous was the plan that the 22nd Psalm that we read was written a thousand years before his hands were pierced as were his feet. Before crucifixion was invented, you see, the Passover lamb had come to be slain. That was his purpose. That's why he descended to earth from heaven. There's an interesting little tidbit that's rarely taught on. And it was custom at that time in the homes when someone celebrated Passover somewhere other than the temple, because there they would use the big bronze uh, sacrificial altar and they would take and put many lambs and many sheep on this gigantic, frankly, it looked like a big barbecue, some three yards square. But in the home, once the Passover lamb was slaughtered, a piece of pomegranate wood, which was common in the region, that and acacia, but pomegranate was straighter, would be taken and sharpened, and a piece would be shoved through the lamb, one horizontally and one vertically. And then it would be put on the fire. And it would be flipped over. You, you see, it was a picture, even there, of what Jesus came to do. The cross was always the plan, folks. There was never any other plan. It wasn't as Mormonism teaches that Lucifer had a plan, and his plan wasn't as good as Jesus' plan. And so God picked Jesus' plan over Lucifer's plan. There was one plan. Christ crucified for the remission of our sin. That's why Paul would write, He is our Passover. That's why Peter would echo much the same sentiment. 1 Peter chapter 1, it says there in verse 20, for he, Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God.
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why the cross is so wonderful to us, amen? Because I don't deserve the cross. I would have never come up with that plan to redeem mankind. I would have come up with the, the book would have been so huge of what you had to do to be saved if I had done it. It's like do all these things and kind of prove this and work out this. And you get, you know, you get 14 of these little pieces of paper that says I was, I sinned, but I, I repented of it. I give you like maybe a dozen. I don't know. You get two extra if you buy them. But what does God do? He says, I know my people. And I created them with free will. And without that free will, they cannot love me. And so my response to them abusing that free will choice is that I will love them more. Think on that for a second. I will love them more than their disobedience. I'll love them more than their disobedience. You ever wondered why the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men? You ever wondered why he's called Emmanuel? That's why. Only God could come up with this plan. And only Jesus could carry it out. When Jesus was born, no wonder the angels were singing. And so he gives them a couple of things to simply remember the important part. Isn't it funny how we as human beings can complicate almost anything? Not the weirdest thing. We can make something so simple as the gospel message. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And somehow it becomes, well, as long as... You go to this church or that church and do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. Now, those things are all what we should be and do because we are saved. But they're not what saves you. You're saved by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, you have to know what that is. That He's the sinless Lamb of God. That He's the Savior of the world. You must know these things to believe. But that is as simple as it gets. It isn't you have to. You, please know this. You can be saved and never go to church. I'm not suggesting you do that. Here's why. Because you'll probably also never grow. But you can. Because it's the good news that saves it's not church that saves. Did you know you can memorize the whole Bible and not be a child of God? Because you can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and know none of the Bible, save what it teaches regarding Jesus. 
You don't have to know what Deuteronomy says about all the Jewish laws. You don't have to know what Leviticus says about all the Levitical laws. You don't have to know what happens at the end. You have to know that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. That's it. That's it. Now, once you do that, strange thing happens. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, and you have a hunger for the Word of God, and you have a hunger for God Himself and worshiping Him. You have a hunger to serve Him. All of a sudden, your priorities change because your mind is being renewed, and you are being transformed into the image of Jesus day by day. But make no mistake, the Gospel is simple. And there's nobody who can't believe. There are people who won't believe, but there is no one who can't. And so he gives them just two simple things. Verse 19, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't do this because you think it's my actual body. Do it because it is in remembrance of me, what I did. Jesus is not teaching transubstantiation, that these elements literally become the body and the blood of Christ. He's simply saying, when you practice this ordinance that we call communion, one of two things that Jesus did, that he passed on to the church. Baptism was the first. Communion was the second. He said, do this and remember me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, here's where that beautiful picture of the Seder comes in. You see, after the supper, the very next cup, the cup of forgiveness. And he took it, and he supped from it, and he passed it around. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. What was the old covenant? It was a covenant of blood of bulls and goats, amen? Of sheep and cattle. It was you killing something for you. This is him dying in your place. That's a new covenant. It was exactly the opposite in many ways. Former pictured the final sacrifice. And that one would be made for us and to us. A new covenant in my blood, which is shed not for himself, not for a church, not for a group of people, but for you as an individual and me as an individual to as many as received him. To each and every one of them did he give the power to become the sons of God, the children of God, the daughters of God. This is as personal as it gets, folks. He's looking at the disciples. Judas for you. Peter for you. John for you. Andrew for you. Matthew for you. There are two provisions here. One is the eschatological. It's a simple, very complex looking word, but it simply means the doctrine of the end times. You see, this would provide for our future. This covenant provided for our future. Because without this covenant, your future 
is very bad. Okay, it's not good. Because if he doesn't take care of our sins, we die with them. And they can't go to heaven. So he takes care of our future. And he gives us uh, another provision, the soteriological. That just means simply the doctrine of salvation. So when you see that word, soteriology, that's the study of being saved. That's all it means. He took care of your future by taking care of your present. Isn't that awesome? And he didn't do it with some complex religious system. My body, my blood. Body broken in the present, his blood shed for the future. Every sin you will ever commit covered by the blood of the Lamb. You see, from a Jewish perspective, here's what happened. The day of Passover would be followed by about four months. And they would get to the days of all, which came in the fall, the fall feasts. And the last of the fall feasts, the tenth of the feasts, was the feast of Yom Kippur. And at Yom Kippur, finally, the high priest would go in literally to the Ark of the Covenant, to the very throne of God, wherein the cherubim dwelt and the presence of God between them. And he would first offer blood for himself and then for the people. And it was on that one day that everybody's slate got wiped clean. And the moment he stepped out, guess what happened? Sin. (laughs) Probably pride on his, I made it, yes. No more did they get cleansed than they got in trouble. And now look what happens. If we confess he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all you got to do is ask. Because the price has been paid. You've been justified, made just as if you have never sinned. You are now both the just and those who are justified. Staggering that Christ's righteousness has been placed in your account and your sin has been placed in His. And He has so much righteousness, infinite righteousness, that it deals with all of your sin. Mind-boggling. That's why it was a new covenant. Because from the Jewish perspective, the old covenant, the moment the priest came out with the little pomegranate bells on the bottom of his tunic, the moment he stepped out behind the veil, came through that crack between the veil, and he stepped back into the holy place from the holy of holies, he was as much a dead man as when he went in. It's kind of like having that, you know... Businesses used to keep ledgers. They're rather fascinating. Actual paper ledgers. And they would be filled with pages and pages and pages and pages of all the business transactions. And as those transactions were taken care of, they would be checked off or maybe lined out or that debt would be paid and it would be marked the date and the time and everything that happened. The ledger of mankind got wiped clean and the moment he stepped back out, there was already a new entry. dead in your trespasses and sins. And now we've been made alive by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. What an amazing picture this is. That's why it says there in Romans 11 that one day all Israel will be saved. 
because they'll get the new covenant. They're going to build a temple, but that one won't be any better than the first one until Jesus comes and occupies it. Amen? Maybe nicer. It's going to be more modern. I would think it isn't built yet. They'll use some nice modern building materials. No face, it'll be beautiful. But without Jesus, it'll be just as empty. And so he says, this is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of your sin for you. Now he gives him a couple of final protests to think on. Bombshell disclosure. Look at this one. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at the table. He says, look, I'm going to give you a new covenant. It's going to take care of everything. But the hand of my betrayer is at the table. Now think on this verse. It literally renders in the original Greek language that the literal hands of the betrayer were on the table. I happen to believe there was exactly one set of hands on the table, and they were Judas's. Because it was Judas sitting next to Jesus that was about to dip the bread with Jesus. And so his hand would have been on the table to reach and dip. So actually Jesus was telling them who it was. But so lame were the disciples in their perception of what God was trying to tell them at that time that they didn't get it. Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Notice it's not an accident. Notice it's not a plot. Notice it's not the Roman cohort. It's not Judas as it's been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question amongst themselves which of them would do this thing. Is it me? That last verse there, verse 23, gives me great hope for all of mankind. Because if the disciples could actually get that part right, they knew they were sinners capable of sin. They saw themselves realistically in that moment. Maybe they weren't thinking rightly about their own heart, but they were certainly understanding that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They were understanding very fully, who is it? Who could it be? It must be somebody sitting here. Look, we're all disciples. We've been traveling. We've seen him do these things, and it's one of us. All the time, you can imagine the squirming Judas, because he's already made the deal, amen? He knows what he's going to do. He's just waiting for the opportunity. He was in a, a rush to cover up his guile, to cover up his guilt. And all of this, can you imagine him listening to the talk about the kingdom of God? He's like, what in the world? Maybe he even began to think for a moment. I can't believe I've done this. But it's too late. He doesn't repent. Though Jesus gives him opportunity to repent, he does not repent. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't flee and say, forget it, I can't do this. Been sealed. Just surprise. The cross of Christ was foreknown to God from the beginning. This was no shock to Jesus. It was a shock to Judas. 
Judas thought he was going to be cut out of the will, so to speak, in the kingdom. He thought, this whack job is talking about dying. That isn't what I want. I didn't get into this. I, got, I thought I was going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Thought I was going to, I was going to rake in the six-figure salary. Going to be getting me some new sandals. Thinking about where I'm going to live in Jerusalem. Like that hill over there. And Jesus starts talking about this death and dying stuff. Mm, oh, sorry. Can I say to you, there's a whole lot of people when they come to the reality of what you actually are in Christ Jesus, that they don't want that kind of Jesus. And you're going to see that next as we close out. Peter would put it this way in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. Men of Israel, the ones who should have known better, they had the 22nd Psalm. They had Isaiah 52, 53 as we know it. The scroll of Isaiah was revered so much it was the Apostle Paul's most quoted piece. They knew, if they cared to listen. No sooner did Jesus give that warning than all of a sudden there's a dispute. Check out verse 24. And there was also a dispute among them as to which one of them would be considered the greatest. You see how lame we can be at times. Jesus is saying, look, new covenant. Judas is being exposed. The hearts of man are shown to be wicked. And they're all going, but I'm going to be a prince. I'm going to be a king. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him become as the younger. You see, the younger person in the crowd always got the nasty duties. It was the younger one in the crowd who washed feet and cleaned up dishes. Took care of all the things that nobody wanted to do. It's kind of like interns here at the church. There's something evil to do. That's who does it. It's the younger ones. You need to learn those lessons. Clean that up. Fix this. Fix that. And he who governs is one as he who serves. And he asked them then a rhetorical question, demanded a negative answer from them. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? You see, the actual answer is he who serves. But to them, the way their brains are working, the dude who's got it all. That's why they're asking who's going to be greatest. You can see Peter over there planning out his, his robe that held like ten swords. You can see Matthew. His has like an iPad calculator stand on it. You see, they were all thinking the wrong way. They were thinking about a physical kingdom. And yet he was saying, look, that's not the way it's going to work. 
Can you imagine what happens next? Is it not he who sits at the table from a human perspective? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Read John's Gospel. What did he do? He had washed their feet. He had told them all these wonderful things of the kingdom. He had spoken to them of the glories of the kingdom of God. And they're all sitting there. Yeah, well, where's my robe? Where's my house going to be? That's what they were thinking. But you are those who continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father has bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Notice where the kingdom is. His table, his kingdom. It was not right then. It was not right there. And he was leaving, so it has not yet happened, because he has not yet been back. Amen? It's a future kingdom. To sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They were in conflict. They were in torment. Were, were they really that shallow, I think, is the thing that comes to my mind. Did they not get it? And yet, you can kind of see that they needed to be converted in their thinking. They're thinking they want to be boss, and Jesus has said you need to be servants. It's a hard thing for us to grasp. They're sitting over there doing the, uh-huh, it's my birthday, it's my birthday, I'm going to the kingdom, uh-huh. And Jesus has said, no, you're going to the cross too, and you're going to be sawn in half. And you're going to live in a cave for most of your life. You get the picture? They got it totally wrong. They're thinking, yeah, Hummer. I'm driving over the Romans. And the Lord was telling them, no, you're actually going to be killed for my namesake. And you're going to serve people and you're going to love them because that's what I came to do. I came to love them and serve them. Very, very interesting comment by Napoleon Bonaparte. He was imprisoned, as many of you may know, if you know your history, on the little island of St. Helena in the Atlantic. And he was imprisoned there on that little island. And he wrote a rather lengthy memoir of his time there. And one of the thoughts in it that he jotted down was this. He said, everything in him, referring to Jesus, astonishes me. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire on love. And to this hour, millions would die for him. If you know about Napoleon, his troops eventually abandoned him. They said, we ain't going. Not happening. This dude's nuts. And the worse it got, the more people loved Jesus. And the church flourished under that persecution, did it not? They would be crowned. But it's a day that's coming future for each of us. And I want to just encourage you. I hope this passage brings you joy, because it should. I hope it encourages you, because it should. Because, see, we can look at it with the right heart, with the right mind, because we know the truth. We shouldn't be mystified by the fact that Jesus loves us, this we know. Amen? For the Bible tells us so.
Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. You see, even these silly little Sunday school nursery rhyme type songs, the very context of the word itself says that one day you're all going to get to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb and be engaged in that feast. (laughs) Can you imagine sitting with the disciples? So Paul, what was it really like when they hucked you off the wall? When you were shipwrecked on the island of of Tremos, what was that like? And you'll be able to ask Jesus, you ever thought about actually talking to Jesus? What you would say to him when you met him? In his kingdom to come. Don't forget that today. Because we have the glories of that kingdom coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we we just thank You. Lord, only You would come up with a plan that would send Your only Son to this foul and despicable earth populated with people who have a penchant for doing the wrong thing all the time. And that seeing that, knowing that, understanding it fully that you would send your own son into this world to die for us so that we might be called your children. Lord, that gives us hope. It gives us joy. It gives us peace that you love us. And we thank you for that joy. We thank you for that peace. Ask that you'd fill us with your presence, Lord. Bless us this day. Cause us to walk in that newness of life that was paid for by the blood of the Lamb. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.